What are you thankful for this morning? Silence. Good thing I prepared this sermon. Well, for many years, my parents have uh, hosted large Thanksgiving gatherings. They've often invited uh, church members or seminary students who live far away, so they have no family in the area and are unable to travel home for the holidays. And they have, as I'm sure many of you do, a Thanksgiving Day tradition of going around the room and having everyone share what they're most thankful for. I remember one year, it was particularly awkward. Uh, I was home for college during my freshman year, and uh, my house was filled with 30 or more people of people I had never met. Um, Before we ate, we all circled up in the living room, and uh, people started sharing what they were most thankful for, just going around the circle in order. Uh, People are sharing deep stuff. You know, they're they're sharing, you know, thankfulness to the Lord for their marriage after some difficulty in their marriage, or thankfulness to the Lord maybe for a new baby that they're holding with them after many years of trying. Uh, so, So people are sharing very meaningful things. There's tears being shed. And uh, I'm the last one to share, and I felt like the pressure was on. The pressure was on for me to share something good. You know, uh, here I am, the oldest son of my dad, who's the pastor, and they're thinking maybe, you know, what is the fruit of 19 years of godly parenting of, you know, Tom and his, and his wife? Uh, and so I, I, I felt like I was on display, and I was last to share. So I said this, and I almost remember it word for word. This year, I'm thankful for many things, but the main thing I'm thankful for this year is ninjas. (laughs) And I I said it without a smile or any other comment. Even my sister, who is uh, under 10 years old, was embarrassed for me. She tried to explain to the guests. There's just absolute silence after I say this. And my sister kind of pipes in, he's not thankful for ninjas. He's thankful for Ninja Turtles, as (laughs) as if that would make it better. Um... My dad, who's sitting next to me, he was the one who started off the circle, just kind of looks over me, and and he just says with like this embarrassed and ashamed smile, is that it? And uh, I said, yep, just ninjas. (laughs) And uh, And then he gave thanks for the meal. So, you know, I think thankfulness is all too often relegated to, you know, Hallmark cards, cheesy stationery, uh, a holiday in November, good manners are just something that we do before we eat. Uh, Or as my answer revealed, just kind of a lack of seriousness. Um, Who, you know, let's let's be honest, who really cares what people are thankful for, right? If we were to go around this morning and have everyone share what they're most thankful for, you know, just with this many people, I guarantee it'd probably get a little bit boring. Um, we'd be dying for someone to kind of lighten the mood and say something like ninjas. I don't know. But, but, but what you are most thankful for says a lot about you, about what you value most. It's, It's actually a great question to ask people, what are you thankful for? Um, anytime, not just, uh, during Thanksgiving. Well, this morning, we want to consider that we were put here on this earth by God to live lives of thankfulness to the Lord. But why should we be thankful? And what does thankfulness look like? 
Well, please turn to your Bibles to Psalm 107, which is found on page 947 of the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you. So as we look at Psalm 107, see if you can spot repeated verses and and see what the main idea of the psalm is. Let's hear what God has to say to us this morning. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say this, those who he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands from the east and west, from north and south. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. So let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Some sat in darkness and the deepest gloom, prisoners suffering in iron chains. For they had rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. So he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled and there was no one to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the deepest gloom and broke away their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men, for he breaks down gates of bronze and cuts through bars of iron. Some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. They loathed all food and drew near the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He sent forth his word and healed him. He rescued them from the grave. So let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. Let them sacrifice thank offerings and tell of his works with songs of joy. Others went out on the sea in ships. There are merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest and lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and they staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. So let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. He turned rivers into a desert, flowing springs into thirsty ground, and fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who live there. He turned the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into flowing springs. There he brought the hungry to live, and they founded a city where they could settle. They sowed fields and planted vineyards that yield a fruitful harvest. He blessed them, and their numbers greatly increased. He did not let their herds diminished. Then their numbers decreased, and they were humbled by oppression, calamity, and sorrow. He who pours contempt on nobles made them wander in a trackless waste. But he lifted the needy out of their affliction and increased their families like flocks. The upright see and rejoice, but all the wicked shut their mouths. Whoever is wise, let him heed these things and consider the great 
love of the Lord. Would you, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be wise and that we would consider your great love for us that you have shown us in your Son. So, Lord, we pray that as you speak through your word, you would give us soft hearts to receive your word. Lord, land your word in our hearts and in our lives. May we see our great need of the Savior, and may we rejoice that you offer deliverance to all who call on your name. Lord, be with us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Psalm 106, verse 47, right before our psalm, the psalmist prays, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Here in Psalm 107, we see right away that we have the answer to that prayer. God's people Israel had been exiled from the promised land for her sins, and God brought judgment down on his people as Babylon and Assyria carried off the Israelites as prisoners slaves or left them to wander in the desert after completely raising the land of Israel. Israel was in exile for 70 years, but then King Cyrus issued a decree that the temple should be rebuilt and that an Israelite remnant should return to the land and the temple be rebuilt. And sometime after Israel's return from exile, this psalm, Psalm 107, was written. And we see the purpose of the psalm right away in the first few verses. The worship leader calls God's people to thank the Lord. They are to thank him because he is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and he's, pro- he's proven his goodness and his steadfast love by redeeming his people from their enemies and gathering them out of exile from the east, west, north, and south. Then we see in verses 4 through 32, the song of the redeemed. I don't know if you noticed as we were reading it, but there's four stanzas to the song. It's the same story, essentially, in each stanza, but the characters and the setting are different. There's there's different details. And then in verses 33 through 43, we see an illustration of God's sovereignty and the great reversal of the deliverance of God. I like to think of verses 33 through 43 as kind of like the bridge or the conclusion to the song. Well, I wanted you to see just the structure of the psalm uh, right away at the outset, because in our remaining time, we're going to be jumping around the psalm quite a bit. Uh, So I encourage you, keep your Bibles open. It It will help you a lot. We're going to consider, first, the trouble that we're in. Second, the deliverance that we need. And third, the thanksgiving that we owe. So the trouble we're in, the deliverance that we need, and the thanksgiving we owe. So first, let's consider the trouble that we're in. Look at verse, verses 4 and 5, and then verses 33 and 34. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. 
And then in verse 33 and 34, he turned rivers into a desert, flowing springs into thirsty ground, and fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who live there. Well, we have in verses 4 and 5 the opening to the first stanza. Uh, this is the setting. It's, it's a desert scene, and it's not a, a happy scene. You know, the people are lost, and they can't find their home as they starve and die of thirst in the desert. But they're not just lost. They have no home to go back to. Uh, they've got nowhere to go. These are the wanderers that we see in this first stanza. And if you know the history of Israel, this is more than just poetry. You know, Israel knew about wandering in the desert. Uh, after being rescued from slavery in Egypt, um, Israel wanders in the desert for 40 years, and the entire adult generation drops dead in the desert without inheriting the promised land because of their, of their rebellion and their sin. Further, the land of Israel, it's surrounded by desert. Uh, so when they're run out of the land by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, many of them wander in the desert with no place to go back to, far, far from home with enemies all around. Well, I know that many of us like to go hiking and camping in eastern Oregon and Washington in the summers in the desert, but I think we have a hard time relating to this picture, you know, until we go a little bit deeper. Because I think this picture that we see here in this first stanza relates to us because many of us feel as though we are in a desert relationally or spiritually. Uh, we're, we're starving and thirsting deep within us for a place to belong. I know for many of the teenagers, you know, it's so, it's so important. You, you desperately want to fit in and be accepted by your peers. Adults feel the same way. We just hide it better. Um, even some of us this morning, one of the reasons why we might be here at church is because it kind of feels like we don't really belong anywhere else. And at least here at church, people are usually nice. We are spiritual and relational wanderers, starving for a place to belong, starving to be accepted. This, this is the trouble that we see in this first stanza. And it's our trouble. Verses 10 and 12, we have the story of prisoners. Some sat in darkness and the deepest gloom, prisoners suffering in iron chains, for they had rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. So he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled, and there was no one to help. Again, for Israel, these, this poetry, it's more than just poetry. Israel knows what it means to be imprisoned by her enemies during the exile. And God's people were imprisoned for a reason. God didn't just kind of let this happen to Israel. He caused it to happen because Israel broke the, her covenant with God. The covenant that God made with his people on Mount Sinai, they said that they would keep his word and follow in God's ways all their days and that they would teach his word to their children, but they failed. Not only did they not teach it to their children and obey it themselves, they totally forgot about it. And God's, God's promised land was filled with the idols of other gods. 
So God handed Israel over to her enemies, and they became slaves and prisoners. Again, as when we first look at this, maybe we have a hard time relating with this picture of, of uh, slavery and imprisonment. I'm, I'm guessing that uh, most of us haven't spent a lot of time in jail. But I think we can relate to what the psalmist is describing here. You know, sometimes the prisons in our lives are not uh, made up of, of criminals and bricks and mortar and bars, but they're prisons of spiritual darkness, prisons of gloom, of suffering, of bitter labor and loneliness. Why do we suffer in these prisons? Life, we know, life was not meant to be this way. Life was not meant to be filled with this kind of darkness. Look look at verse 11. The rebellion against the word of God. For they had rebelled against the words of God. They had despised the counsel of the Most High. We built our own prisons. You know, when we reject God as king, we become prisoners to our sin. Sin holds us in bondage, and we are helpless as we follow our master, the father of lies. It's almost like we can't help it. We, we, we give in to our, our greed, our lust, our anger, our gluttony, our pride, our covetousness, our jealousy, our hate. As we considered last week, no New Year's resolution will free us from our spiritual slavery. Not only that, we like our prisons. We feel comfortable. You know, it, it's almost like we have Stockholm Syndrome. Giving into our sin feels like, it gives us the illusion that we're actually in control. But are you? When you give into your sin, are you in control? You know, it, it reminds me of, like, of, of a smoker, an alcoholic, who, who often brags while continuing in their addiction. I can quit whenever I want. And our addiction to sin is much deeper than that. Jesus said in John 8, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. This is the trouble of the prisoners. And it's our trouble. Let's look at verses 17 and 18. Some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. They loathed all food and drew near the gates of death. Verses 17 and 18, we have the trouble of the fools. Uh, this, this story, this stanza, is a little more general than the first two. We see the consequences of foolish living as one draws near to death. Seems like in sickness. Maybe you're feeling in good health this morning. Yeah, thank God, right? But you must know what it feels like, as John shared earlier, to have the flu or even something much worse. Uh, to loathe food, just the thought of food makes your stomach turn. Most of us have been there. Why does that happen? Why do people get sick? Why do people die? You know, our emotions tell us that life was not meant to be this way. Well, look at verse 17 again. Some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. Rebellious ways iniquities. Now, we shouldn't make the mistake that Jesus warns against 
in thinking that specific sicknesses are a result of specific sins, right? We don't, God doesn't give us strep throat because we spoke unkindly to a coworker. But our foolishness is the reason why we have sickness and death in this world, because of the way that we spurn the word of the Most High. Rather than listening to the voice of God, many of us have spent our lives in foolish living, and the end is death. You know, isn't, isn't that encouraging? We see in verse 39, you know, their numbers decreased. They were humbled by oppression, calamity, and sorrow. Dropping like flies, and no one to blame but ourselves for our foolishness. This is the trouble of the fools, and it's our trouble. And then in verse 23 through 27, we find our final troubled lot. Others went out, to, out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wits' end. So here, in, in this final stanza, we have the trouble of the mariners. Not the Sunday school class or the team in Seattle, baseball team in Seattle. Uh, but this is the story of seamen, you know, of merchants of the sea. Now, we see here in this passage that the mariner's sin isn't necessarily highlighted. You know, they just seem to be kind of going about their business, and then this storm rises up on the sea and threatens to bring them all down to their watery grave. And for us, even if we haven't uh, faced some natural disaster or been in a situation like this poetry is describing, we know what it's like to be at our wit's end. We know what these sailors are feeling in a sense. To feel helpless in a crisis, or just the many curveballs that life throws our way that we have to deal with on a maybe daily basis. You know, what will we do in caring for aging parents? What, what should we do in guiding our wayward or unmotivated kids? What does it look like for us to navigate the season of unemployment? Uh, where do we turn for wisdom in these situations? In a difficult marriage, what do we do? Sometimes we feel like we're at our wit's end. This is the trouble of the mariners, and it's our trouble too. What's striking about the storm and the trouble that is described in verse 33 and the following is that God is the one who brought the trouble. Did you notice that as I was reading that earlier? You can see it most clearly in verse 25, 26, 33, verse 40. I mean, just, just look at it um, in verse 25. He spoke, that's God, and he stirred up the tempest that lifted high the waves. God brings the trouble. Do you believe that? This is what it's saying. Your disease, your money problems, stress, depression, they are all brought in 
to our lives by God, by the God of the universe. You know, he doesn't stand far off surprised. Oh, there's a storm. Wow. I didn't see this one coming. No. His voice stirs up the mighty tempest and lifts high the waves. One of my favorite quotes is from an old Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, and he writes this. It's kind of long, but follow, follow with me. Winter in the soul is by no means a comfortable season. And if it be upon you right now, it will be very painful to you. But there is comfort, namely that the Lord makes it. He sends the sharp blasts of adversity to nip the buds of expectation. He shatters the hoarfrost like ashes over the once verdant meadows of our joy. He casts forth his ice like morsels, freezing the streams of our delight. He does it all. He is the great winter king and rules in the realms of frost. And therefore, you cannot murmur. Losses, crosses, heaviness, sickness, poverty, and a thousand other ills are the Lord's sending and come to us with wise design. So what is God's wise design in bringing trouble into our lives? Better be good, because it's hard. Well, it's so that God might get the glory as we call out to him in our neediness, and he saves us, and we're delivered from our trouble. And that's what we're going to consider next, in our second point, the deliverness that we desperately need. How do all the troubled respond in all four stanzas of our, of our psalm? The wanderer, the prisoner, the fool, the mariner, they all have the exact same response. I'll just read from verse 6. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. They recognized their great need. They recognized that they needed help, that they could not get themselves out of the situation. So they call on the name of the Lord. You know, it seems to me um, that many, many people live like agnostics until some crisis hits or until they're in trouble. And they're, and they're faced with their own mortality. You know, I think even, uh, even Hollywood gets this. Recently, I saw that, that movie, uh, the Gravity, um, where Sandra Bullock's character, as she's facing death, even though she's not a religious person, she starts praying. She starts praying that God would save her. She starts praying for her soul. And this is a proper response when we're in trouble. Pray to God in your day of trouble. But don't just wait until you feel like you're at the end of your rope. Because your day of trouble is here today. Maybe you feel that today. Maybe you don't. But because of our sin, our day of trouble is very near. And when we swallow our pride and call on God, God shows his power yet again. And this time, it's in deliverance. You know, consider God's amazing deliverance just in the psalm alone. You know, look at, look at verses 7 and 9. The, the desert wanderer who is homeless and on the verge of death, he's given a city where he can settle and call home. And then verse 9, he's satisfied with food and drink. Then look at, down at verse 
14 and 16, we have our prisoner. He was in the gloom of despair due to his sin. But he's brought out of the darkness and the, and the gloom. His chains are broken and he is freed. Look at verse 20. We have our, our sick fool. God sends forth his word and God heals him. He rescues him from the grave. And finally, look at verses 29 and 30. Our mariners who are about to go down to Davy Jones' locker, what's going to happen to them? Well, when they call on the Lord, he stills the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea are hushed. And then he guides them to their desired haven. Leads all these troubled souls out of their distress when they call on him. You know, this, this is the beauty of the gospel. You know, God loves to take the poor and the needy, those who recognize their great need, and he loves to reverse their fortune. And I think we see that clearly, too, in uh, this conclusion, or this, this what I call a bridge here at the end of the, of the psalm. We see in verses 35 and 30 through 38, in verse 41, you know, turning the desert into pools of water, parched ground into flowing streams, bringing the, the hungry to live and the, and the homeless where they could settle in a city. We see here that God reverses the curse, the curse that even clings to the ground of the earth itself. He turns the trouble of people upside down into blessing. That's what God loves to do. He brings beauty and life out of the desert and out of the prison, the sickbed, and the storm. You know, I think as we read it uh, kind of simplistically to make a caricature of it. We love to take this kind of, this concept and make a Disney movie out of it. Or, you know, to do something where we, you know, God's our good luck charm. You know, he's our, he's our get out of jail free card. He's uh, a cosmic genie. He's a magic potion that heals us. Or he's some like special gift that, a, you know, that an elf gave us that when we get in the, uh, a sharp spot, we just say this prayer and boom, salvation. And we're delivered from our trouble. And everything's happy. But God does better than that. He comes down himself. And saves us from the biggest problem that we have. Rather than putting band-aids on our gaping wounds. He goes right to the root of our problem. He goes to our sin. You see... When Israel was delivered from exile, what they sing about here is just a preview of a greater deliverance that was to come hundreds of years later. Because Israel didn't only need to be delivered from Babylon and Assyria, they needed to be delivered from the exile of their sin. And we have the same need. So God sends his son. You know, and when this deliverer shows up on the scene, he doesn't come on a white horse with a sword. You know, he comes knowing trouble, like is described here in the psalm. He is familiar with suffering and affliction. You know, for example, before Jesus started preaching, Jesus finds himself in the desert, tempted by Satan himself. You know, he's without food. He's without water, just like our desert wanderer. But instead of giving in to the devil's temptation having food and water just like that, he looked to the home that he had above with the Father. And he fed on God's word and faith. He lived 
for the city and the glory that was to come. This God-man, he knew the trouble of the desert, but he walked out of the desert looking forward to the city that would one day be filled with the praise of his name. Later, this deliverer stood up in the synagogue, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he unrolled it and found the place where it was written this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery for the, for, of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began preaching, saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Instead of spurning the word of God, like our prisoner does in the psalm, Jesus preaches the word of God. And through the preaching of Jesus, prisoners are freed. Bonds fall off. This deliverer, Jesus Christ, pushed back the curse that brought, brought sickness and brought death because of our foolishness. You know, he came healing the sick, raising the dead even, and rebuking our foolish rebellion. When Jesus' friend Lazarus had died, he said to Lazarus' sister Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And then he raises Lazarus from the dead after Lazarus had been dead for, for four days. Death was no match for this deliverer. Not only did death and sickness shrink back from this humble Savior, but when his disciples feared for their lives, when a furious squall came on up on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves. He said, quiet, be still. And instantly, the wind died down and it was completely calm. Who was this who ruled the wind and the waves? Who was this who broke through the darkness of sin and death? Who was this through his preaching shattered the bonds of prisoners' chains? Who was this who walked out of the desert trusting in God's word alone? This is the Lord. This is Jesus Christ. This is our deliverer. This is our friend. He came not only 2,000 years ago and made a big commotion in the Middle East, but his blood still speaks a better word to us today. On the cross, Jesus took all our trouble, the curse, the shame of our sin. He took it on himself, and he was crushed under the weight of it. But through God's judgment of our sins on the cross, we can share in the resurrection life of our firstborn brother and our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who stands even now at the right hand of the Father, ready to come back and soon and turn all of our trouble finally into blessing. If only we will recognize our need and call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Christian friend, you were in a heap of trouble because of your sin, but God delivered you through his son. Non-Christian friend, you are in trouble. Will you not call on the name of the Lord and be saved? Turn from your sin and know 
the forgiveness of sin, and the hope of eternal life forever. You know, let's, let's be honest, though. I think often we, we say, you know, Christian, non-Christian. But uh, do we really know? I mean, it's hard. Just because, we, you know, you go to church or you're baptized, you have Christian parents, you said a prayer once, doesn't make you a Christian. You know, we know that. It's not a magic snap of the fingers. How can you know if you have been saved from this trouble of your sin? Finally, that brings us to our third and final point, the thanksgiving that we owe. The thanksgiving that we owe. Consider the response of the redeemed in each song. Uh, just like the prayer for help and the deliverance uh, being the same in all four stanzas, the, the response is the same. So I'll just read from verse 8. It's the same in, for, in verse 15, 21, and 28. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. What do the truly rescued do? Well, they are called to live lives full of thanksgiving to the one who rescued him. And the greater the trouble, the greater the rescue, the greater the debt of thanks that people owe. Right? It's just logical. And it doesn't get much more dire than, than rebellion against the infinitely holy God and thought, word, and deed. Right? The trouble doesn't get much worse facing a holy God in our sin. And it doesn't get much more breathtaking the deliverance of that trouble by God sending his son and accomplish our rescue through his death and resurrection. So if you aren't regularly amazed at the gospel that I was just talking about here, the steadfast love of the Lord in rescuing you from your sin, the worst of sinners that you know, right? We each are the worst of sinners that we know. Maybe if you're not regularly amazed by this, it's possible that you haven't been rescued from your sin yet. If you think, oh, oh no, you know, you have, a, you have a sensitive conscience when you hear that, and you think, maybe that's me. Sometimes when I'm sitting here, church, and I'm hearing the gospel, I just kind of tune out. I get sleepy. It's a little bit boring. I've heard it a hundred times. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? Well, this is where the psalm is so helpful. What should our response be to this deliverance? Just look at verse 22, for example. Let them sacrifice thank offerings and tell of his works with songs of joy. You know, offering sacrifices of thanksgiving to God is a good place to start uh, in, in understanding what we have been rescued from um, and the deliverance that we have. Just as we considered last week, our whole lives, our we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. As we considered in Romans 12, we know that all our life, is to be worship and praise to God. Nothing is to be off limits to this worship. So, yes, you know, when you think about what you're thankful for, yes, thank God for what God has given you in this life in terms of, you know, family, home, or go deeper, freedom in Christ, ability to hear God's word and be safe from the condemnation of the enemy. But then don't just stop there. But by being thankful, express your thanks to him, to the Lord. To the one who gave you these things, express your thanksgiving. And consider that the good gifts that we know in this life are just a small piece of God's goodness to us. And, and that goodness is seen most clearly in, in the gospel, God having mercy on us in our sin. You know, that's why 
when we're just here together at church, when we gather and we sing songs, we could sing lots of good songs. There's lots of good things that we could sing together, but we deliberately choose songs that have to do with the gospel, what God has done to save us from our sin. We want to be very thoughtful about the words that we're singing, because singing, just as we see here in verse 22, tell of his works with songs of joy. That's one of the ways that we express our thanks to God. Um, so when we're, when we're singing together, think of this verse. Not like, do I like the tune, or is this my style? But think about, you know, this is an opportunity to express your thanks and your joy to God and what he has done in rescuing you. And by singing loudly and belting it out, I know especially, you know, for guys in this country, maybe Henson's a little bit of an exception, but, you know, guys don't like to, to sing as much. This is an opportunity to thank God. And when we sing loudly, we encourage others to, to be encouraged in God. Just a very, a very practical way. Even if you don't have a good voice, belt out your joy and thanksgiving to God. And, and then we need to take time in just kind of the normal rhythms of life uh, with family and friends to talk about uh, the mighty works of God, how he saved us from our sin. Another great question just to ask as you get together with other people from the church is, how did you become a Christian? Tell me about how God rescued you from your sin. It's a, it's a great story, no matter what the circumstances are. Just like in all these songs, the, the, kind of the circumstances are different, but God rescues in the end. So don't take for granted your deliverance, and thankfulness will naturally flow from your heart. You know, imagine how easy and natural evangelism would be if we're filled with thankfulness to how God has rescued us from our sin. And then just look at verse 32, for example. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. You know, just as we've been thinking about already, thanksgiving is not meant to just be um, individual. It's meant to be expressed corporately. Um, in community. That's one of the reasons why we gather here each Lord's Day, not necessarily to hear polished preaching or, well, you know, professional music or just to see our friends or just come because we feel guilty. This is what we're supposed to do. We go to church on Sundays. No, the reason why we get together as a church is to thank God and, and just be in awe of his goodness, be in awe of his steadfast love, and, to, and then to express that thanks together and, and by doing that, we encourage, we encourage one another to do that. You know, we've all had different kinds of weeks. Some of us have just gone through a very hard week. But when we come together, you know, and we hear the praise of God around us, that should encourage us to continue to praise and thank him. You know, as, uh, as elders, we, we pray for you, members of Henson, regularly. What do you think we thank God for in your life when we come to your name in the church directory? How do you think we're thanking God for you? Well, hopefully, we're thanking God for your humility, uh, your love for God and this church, the way that you are seeking to be a force for unity in this body, because you know that you deserve the trouble of the wrath of God but instead you have been shown great mercy. So therefore, you are showing mercy to those around you. Well, this beautiful psalm ends in verse 43, calling the wise to consider all this and be amazed at the steadfast love of the Lord. You know, we see that the, the, God's love never ends. You know, our attention span might be short, 
and, be, and we might be prone to wander and become more enamored with the gifts of God rather than God himself, the giver. But the wise man and the wise woman continues to come back and hear the old, old story of how God redeems sinners. What amazing love that God would love people as rebellious as us and then call us his treasure. Well, we should conclude where we began. Consider the opening lines again of this song. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say this, those he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands from the east and the west, from the north and the south. We have redeemed, but we have been redeemed so that we can thank God, not for ninjas or good health or family or good food. You know, all those things uh, point to the goodness of God and his steadfast love that is expressed in saving us from our sins. He calls people from the east, the west, the north, and the south to worship him and recognize how great he is and how strong and eternal his love is for those who are in his son, Jesus Christ. You know, that we, we, we reflected how the psalmist prays in Psalm 106 to deliver his people from exile so they might praise him. And here the psalmist thanks God for how he has done just that. This amazing rescue mission has been completed. If God's people, you know, thousands of years ago could thank God for being rescued from exile physically, how much more should we be filled with thanks for how God has rescued us from the spiritual exile of our sins? We will thank God for eternity, for our salvation. And it's not going to be silly, trite, burdensome, but full of joy. You know, John, the Apostle John, saw a vision. Uh, He saw a glimpse of what it would be like for all the saints from east, west, north, and south, from all the nations of the earth to gather around the throne and to thank God forever. And he said it was a multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. So let's be wise as we consider, for those of you who are in Jesus Christ, that our future will be before the throne, thanking God for the great salvation he has accomplished. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us. Lord, as we go into this week, may we not take for granted the salvation that you hold out to us in your Son. Lord, show us our great need to be saved, and may we live lives of thanksgiving in our jobs, in our families, and in this church. Lord, we pray that you would accomplish uh, this in us, that you might get the glory and that we might know the joy of being united with you through your Son. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.